stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Harper's Magazine may have said it best when describing today's guest, Laurie Moore. Fifty years from now, it may well turn out that the work of very few American writers has as much to say about what it means to be alive in our time as that of Laurie Moore. Over the course of the past 30 years, Laurie Moore has earned a place among the best and most beloved of American writers. The author of four collections of short stories, three novels, Moore's work has appeared in the Best American Short Stories of the Century, has won the O. Henry Prize, and been a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. A longstanding faculty member at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Lori Moore has recently become the Gertrude Conway Vanderbilt Professor of English at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. In addition to her fiction, she's a frequent essayist on popular culture for the New York Review of Books. And she's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest story collection, Bark, a collection the New York Times declares will stand by itself as one of our funniest, most telling anatomies of human love and vulnerability. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lori Moore. Oh, thank you. In addition to being a great writer, I think you're also a great chooser of epigraphs at the beginning of your books. (laughs) Thank you for noticing. Each of your books has several epigraphs. Uh, which give a key or a clue to the sensibility of the collection. And this one has a poem by Louis Glick and two quotations that give us at least two different meanings of the word bark. One, the bark of a dog. The other, the bark of a tree. Can you talk about how you came to find bark as the title of this collection of stories? Well, bark is one of those great Anglo-Saxon words that writers just love to use. And... um, I did notice the word showing up in its several different meanings in all of the stories. Now, it probably has also shown up in all my other stories and, and in all of everyone's stories, really, because it's just one of those great words. But um, I pulled it out for specifically for its meaning of an animal cry, but also for its meaning of um, a kind of protective layer on on a tree that then, of course, can come off. Now, it also can mean like an injury, like to bark a shin. It can mean um, a water vessel that, you know, the bark of Dante that takes you across the river Styx. It can mean the bark of the brain. The cortex of the brain is sometimes 
called bark or looks like bark, and I, and I have a reference to that in one of the stories. Um, and so I, you know, and it also has a, a context in journalism of 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 news. You know, here's the news, um, and so and a barker at a carnival is is someone who calls people to come take the ride. You know, that kind of thing. So it it's one of those great words that spins around and has a lot of different meanings, and and all the meanings are are there in the stories. And also, you know, the fact that one is writing on paper, the reference to trees and bark, you know, if it says bark on the cover and then you open it up and, of course, you have, you have pages that are made from the pulp of trees. So um, in some ways it refers to paper. You've said in a previous interview that you've noticed a trend in your students' work of people putting together collections that are theme-based where the stories all talk to each other and that there's this impression that this is what publishers are looking for these days, but that you actually don't see your collections in this light, that um, you see them more as temporal documents. Can you, can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, what that means is that each story is just separate uh, for me. I, I'm just, there's some, um, some trigger in the world, some piece of inspiration and I go and write a story that um, is a response to that and an exploration of that. And then the next story I write will be prompted by something else entirely. I'm not writing writing to a collection. I'm write, you know, I'm not trying to find something that can be slotted in um, to form a thematic collection. So what I have. You know, and this time I have 10 years of stories. In my last collection, I had eight years of stories. After a certain amount of time, you have enough stories and they should go out there. This this collection has gotten some grief for being short, but in fact, my first two collections were much shorter than this. So I, I think... Maybe we're just getting greedy. Well, I think this book is taking the rap for, I don't know, for the others. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but it's just my second longest collection. Well, another way your work becomes a temporal document is the way that you allow the political times, the political context to become part of the story. Even when the stories aren't about something political, in the background we get the uh, events that are going on. And I think this has always been true about your fiction, that you've had uh, the political element in the background and sometimes in the foreground, but it seems even more so with Bark. Uh, I think of Abu Ghraib, I think of 9-11 and the economic downturn and the election of Obama. And it, even though the stories aren't necessarily directly engaging these themes, it feels almost like this toxic fog that the characters are moving around in that they aren't able to fully g- grapple with but are still somehow steeped in. Well, it is what's on the characters' minds because it's it's what was on all of our minds, and so I, I wasn't going to exclude it and sort of artificially, um, you know, have the world not appear in the story where it would naturally appear. And there are, I mean, there are three stories that I think have global events referenced in them, um, and the first story in the collection was written in 2003 and published in 2003, which was the year of the invasion of Iraq. And that was on 
all of our minds, and it's on the mind of the character. And so that is there in the story as characters go about living their lives, but with this going on. Someone said to me once that the story was published, you know, it was published the same year um, as the uh, invasion of Iraq. He said, you really got to work fast. Uh (laughs) I said, it was on my mind. I couldn't do anything else. I was helpless before the whole thing. Can you speak a little bit about writing politically and what pitfalls or considerations go into uh, allowing that into the story? I don't think of that as a political background. I just think of it as this is the world. This is what people are thinking about. This is what they're talking about as they live their lives. I don't – there's no political agenda. There's – it's not a political story. All three stories are stories of anxiety and, and weariness. And they're, the stories are just trying to be true – to the character's consciousness and, and alertness to to things in the world outside their own backyard, as we all, we're all alert to things like that. I mean, we're not all just hemmed in by our own backyards. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Lori Moore about her new story collection, Bark. So, Lori, let's uh, have you read a little bit from the collection so people can hear some of the prose. Well, I could I could just read from the beginning since this is the this is the first story in the collection and it's the story we were just discussing that was written in two thousand three. This is called Debarking. Ira had been divorced six months and still couldn't get his wedding ring off. His finger had swelled doughly around it, a combination of frustrated desire, unmitigated remorse, and misdirected ambition, he said to friends. I'm going to have my entire finger surgically removed. The ring, supposedly gold, though now that everything he had ever received from Marilyn had been thrown into doubt, who knew, cinched the blousy fat of his finger, which had grown grown around it like like a happy vine." Maybe I should cut off the whole hand and send it to her, he said on the phone to his friend Mike, with whom he worked at the State Historical Society. She'll understand the reference. Ira had already ceremoniously set fire to his wedding tux, hanging it on a tall stick in his backyard, scarecrow style, and igniting it with a big lighter. That sucker went up really fast, he gasped apologetically to the fire marshal, after the hedge caught two and before he was brought overnight to the local lockdown facility so fast. Maybe it was, I don't know, like the residual dry-cleaning fluid. You'll remove that ring when you're ready, Mike said now. Mike's job approving historical preservation projects on old houses left him time to take a lot of lenient parenting courses and to read all the lenient parenting books. Here's what you do for your depression, he said. I'm not going to say lose yourself in charity work. I'm not going to say try to get some perspective by watching our country's news each evening and by contemplating those worse off than yourself, those, say, who are about to be blown apart by bombs. I'm going to say this. Stop drinking. Stop smoking. Eliminate coffee, sugar, dairy products. Do this for three days and start everything back up again. Bam, I guarantee you, you will be so happy. I'm afraid, Ira said softly, that the only thing that would make me happy right now is snipping the brake cables on Marilyn's car. You're listening to Lori Moore read from her latest short story collection, Bark. 
So Laurie, one of the things that is often mentioned about your work is your fascination with doubling and double meanings, most notably with puns, but also even in A Gate at the Stairs, your last novel with uh, dual perception when the same object is perceived or misperceived as a cherub and a gargoyle. And I was curious if you could talk about what it, what you find fascinating about that and uh, what meaning there is behind these these doublings for you, whether it has something to do with the failure of language to effectively communicate or something else. Um, I suppose it has to do with the, the sort of interesting instability of, of language and also the the flexibility of one's perception and of one's senses, one's eye and one's ear, to sort of see see and hear something a little different, differently. And in fact, maybe it will be the opposite. It reminds me of that character in your story, Referential, who says mutilation is a language and vice versa, uh, sort of pointing to the way language is a vessel and also fails to be a vessel for communication and the ways in which we might hear a certain word when a different word is being said or a different meaning is being implied. Yeah, I think, I think there's an, there's an element of that. You, that, you know, sometimes there's a parallel universe that's sort of attached to that word and, and you either go, you go through, you go into that universe through that word or not. Um, I think in that story referential, there is a lot of not saying because as soon as you say something, it's going to be too true and then the world will change. So there's a lot of holding back on, on language there. In reading other interviews of you, I've noticed that it's very frequent that people want to know how much of your fiction is a doubling of your autobiography. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that phenomenon, if you've noticed people going there as often as I seem to notice in reading the interviews, and what it is about human nature that wants this resonance between the author's autobiographical facts and and the fiction that they create, and about your fiction in particular. I think... All writers get it if they are writing in a quasi-realistic fashion. I think as soon as you start, uh, you know, if you're writing fantasy, if you're writing, you know, thrillers, if you're writing sci-fi, if you're writing historical fiction, you're not going to get it. Um, but I do think this is this is what happens. I was just in Toronto and... Um, a journalist there was saying she had she had just interviewed um, John Irving and and John Irving was just wringing his hands saying people no longer know how to read because with his last book they had gone through it and said is this you is this you is this your son is this this and he was completely dismayed um, but I think and I think he was dismayed because he'd never encountered that before. I think with his other books this didn't happen. But I think with most writers they do get that and it is dismaying because people because it 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 does seem to suggest a lack of respect for fiction, but I have tried instead to think of it as a compliment. 
um, that maybe you have created a world so convincing that, that people say, this must have happened to her. So I, I, I've tried to sort of look on the bright side of, of it. But, you know, when you're writing fiction, you're writing fiction. If, I, I couldn't write nonfiction, I don't think. And tell, and tell a story without lying every four words. I mean, my habit is to invent. Um, but my habit is also to draw from the world and to draw from my life and then create something new. Have you ever been tempted to do a Philip Roth and intentionally mess with the reader's expectations by conflating the two? Oh, I'm not Philip Roth. Nobody cares that much. People would care about Philip Roth, but no one would care about my doing that. I did take on the idea of autobiographical writing a little bit in one of my stories in Birds of America. And so I, I may still be taking the rap for that. But it does, it, it does address the problem of, of how to write about things that happen in life. It, it did take that on a little bit, but I didn't. Um, and I had a character who, whose situation in life bore some resemblance to my own. But that really was the closest I ever came. Forgive me for returning to your epigraphs once again. Okay. <laughs> no, I love that. Well, if we look at the epigraphs over the course of a lot of your books, a lot of them have to do with animals. For instance, if you look in, in self-help, uh, there's a quotation from a book called Sex Lives of Animals Without Backbones and another from a book called Butchering Livestock at Home. And then there's the epigraphs in Birds of America about birds. And in Bark, all three of them explore uh, animals but personified from, from the non-human perspective. We have the Louise Glick poem, the dog is sort of a child self, the unconsolable pre-verbal self. And then we have two, one from the perspective of a dog and, and one from the perspective of a tree, a really lovely line that says, I shall still be here growing my bark around the wire fence like a grin. And I was wondering if if this repetition of this non-human uh, theme in your epigraphs pointed to anything, pointing to a fascination around perhaps the, the uh, inscrutable, uncontrollable, undomesticatable part of ourselves as humans and how that clashes up against uh, the narratives that we tell ourselves. If if this was the source of the of the comedy and, and and tragedy in your work, I don't know. You know, it's funny with uh, with the epigraphs in in this in this uh, with all of the epigraphs. I I just found I found quotes and and that and these were these were um, from poems. All of them. Um, that I just loved. I loved the poems they were in, and I loved the lines that I um, that I ended up reprinting there. And and I thought that they um, had something to do with what I was also writing about. I, I mean, the Amy Gersler uh, line, which it's it's from a poem called "Interview with a Dog." She says, "Don't be gruff. Anything that falls on the floor." is mine. I just want to make sure I quote that right. Anything that falls on the floor is mine. I love the artistic assertion of that. Yeah, that you was know. wonderful. Yeah. I... And it somehow connects for me to a scene in, in your story, Paper, Paper Losses, 
when some characters are discussing why we don't eat dolphins and you you have a character say this really wonderful line you could only understand something if you didn't desire it i found that really fascinating well the story the story says that after the, after the boy says the I, I guess he's just talking about the language of dolphins and i i can't remember precisely what he says he says something about we wouldn't even we would be eating dolphins if we didn't know they had a language or something like that and um, at any rate. Two of the stories in Bark are either retellings or homages to uh, other people's stories. You have the story referential that is a retelling of a Vladimir Nabokov story and your story Wings, which is a reference to the Henry James book, Wings of a Dove, can you talk a little bit about, first of all, with referential, uh, what was it about that story by Nabokov that um, inspired you to relate to it in this way, to en- engage it and retell it in your own voice? Yeah, I don't know. That was a mystery to me because I had I'd been reading that story, you know, for 20 years and then – or 30, 30 years. And then suddenly – I read it, and it, I was noticing different things in it, which is what happens with great pieces of literature. And I thought, what would happen if one wrote a kind of shadow story to it? What would happen if one, you know, as a writer, had one's you know, own version of referential mania, which is the phrase in the original story, Signs and Symbols, where, where um, and it's a phrase to describe a kind of schizophrenia where everything's, where the, Details of the world all seem to be referring to you or, or be interpreted in some way and have a different meaning than just what they have at face value. So I thought, well, I'll commit my own act of referential mania and write a shadow story. And, I, and, I, and it, it follows the Nabokov story pretty closely, it does different things and isn't anywhere near as good. Um, but it... You know, the couple is not married, but they go and visit the son. Now, in the Nabokov story, the couple is closely married, and they're immigrants from Europe, from war-torn Europe. The war war in Europe is there. None of that is in in the story that I wrote. But um, the son is in my story. The son has speech, and and he confronts this... um, this father figure in his life. And, and so in that way, it just becomes a different story. But I did follow the shape of the, of the Nabokov story fairly, fairly closely. And then when I was done, I thought, and, and I deliberately had references. I even made a little joke, a little white Russian joke. I have one of the characters offering to make the other character a white Russian. And he says, no, I'll just have plain vodka. <laughs> um, but, and then at the end, I thought, can one really do this? This might not be legal. This might not be permissible. But, you know, The New Yorker went ahead and published it. We did it. And, and I, I mean, I, I, I acknowledged, you know, the story's debt completely. I think I was a little bit inspired by Nathan Englander's use of, of the Carver story, what we talk about when we talk about love. And, of course, Carver had used a Chekhov story. Um, a story called About Love. 
So there's about love, what we talk about when we talk about love, and then what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. I mean, there are ways in which people have always sort of, or writers have always sort of been inspired by other writers. Now, um, Wings is is not a close following at all. Wings is just a lifting of a plot element from Henry James's last great novel. And... Um, it's a plot element that other people have lifted and used before because it's great. It's a triangle. In fact, James used it all the time in his in his in his work. He always he had two people plotting against another. That you know he looked at it from you know a hundred different angles and came up with different conclusions and asked different questions and came up with different answers. But it was it always involved marriage and money, um, and this is in wings. It, in, it has um, two people, two young musicians who are down on their luck plotting against an older man. And But like the James, James was very interested in how far you could go um, in, in terms of venality and wickedness before your love broke, before, before it was no longer possible to have affection for someone, and and that's an interesting idea to me. So that that's in the story as well. We're talking today to Lori Moore about her latest short story collection, Bark. You're listening to Between the Covers, Lori. Uh, in a in a previous interview, I believe it was a question asking for advice around aspiring writers. You mentioned not only that somebody should have a voracious appetite for reading but that they should have a love for music. What is it about music that you believe is important for a writer when they learn how to write? I can't imagine that I would give that advice. I just feel like if you're not, that's not advice you can give. You can't tell someone to go love music. They either already do or they don't. I mean, and if you don't love music, I don't know how, I don't know how you can even be alive, but I don't know how you can, how you can write. And in fact, I don't know any writers who don't love music. Do you? I don't actually. No. So that uh, that as a piece of advice would be meaningless. And if I if I gave it, I, I'll <laughs> I'll just take it back because it sounds so stupid. You can't say to someone, "Go out there and love you some music," you know? No, that's. <laughs> well, do you feel like your appreciation of music has played a large role in in the way you find yourself writing sentences? Well, I hope so. I hope so. I hope I'm writing to a, you know, a somewhat musical ear. Um, I'm very interested in the, the sound of languages, this, or sound of language, I should say, and the sound of the voice of a story. And I'm writing to my, you know, my mind's ear. I'm not necessarily reading it out loud and writing to a theatrical in the room ear but um but cadence rhythm voice writers care about all of that always or at least they should do you listen to music when you're writing no when i'm writing no no i know ann Beatty said she used to but no i i would be way too distracted i once i once was very close with a musician who couldn't even be in an elevator where there was music or he couldn't, I mean, he couldn't do anything if there was music around him, anything else, because music was just so distracting. He would just go there. 
Um, but I guess there might be ways to listen to music and put it in your in your work as you, you know. That's why Ann Beatty's music is full of songs and full of characters who listen mostly to Bob Dylan, I think. But <laughs> you mentioned in a discussion you had about Donald Barthelme that you felt like his writing was doing a certain type of jazz. I do. I do. And he loved jazz, apparently. Um, And I think he got as close to that kind of abstraction of narrative without having it become absurd and meaningless and unreadable. Um, I mean, Gertrude Stein was doing her abstract experiments, but I, I think that Barthelme, and I'll say his name Barthelme because I always say Bartleme, which is wrong. Um, I think Barthelme was constructing a kind of jazz story, and he was drawing from high and low and here and there. And I, I said to someone once, I said, I think this is because he grew up in Houston where there was no zoning. You know, you'd have a barbecue shack next to a church, next to a, you know, next to a skyscraper. Um, And Houston does have that kind of surreal quality to it. Um, And, and so his, his, and and of course he was interested in, in visual um, art as well. So he was interested in painting and, and, um, Painters have done that already. You know, what painters had done already what he was trying to do. If you associate the writing of Bartholomew with that of jazz, is there a certain type of music you would connect with your own writing? Oh, like musical comedy? <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, I never, I never have, but... Um, you know, if one loves musical theater and if one loves opera, maybe it all gets in there in some way. And theater was a real formative experience for you growing up, wasn't it? It was because I used to, you know, but it was, you know, small time regional theater. But I just loved sitting in the audience and watching the rehearsals and watching the productions. Um, and I do try to see as I'll see any play. I don't care. I'll see bad plays. I I still love theater. Um, And I love opera, too. So maybe it's all getting in there somehow. I loved when you were writing about the TV show Homeland for the New York Review of Books, and you mentioned that the actor Mandy Patimkin, who plays Saul on the show, that you you could tell he was a Broadway theater actor by the way he knocked on doors. Yes, because he went... And I thought, whoa, you can take the man off the stage, but you can't take the stage out of the man. Um, I haven't heard him knock like that, you know, recently. Do you think he read your review and is trying to mix things up a little bit? Well, I I think probably he didn't need to read my review, but I think probably someone said, you know... Maybe there's a little too much song and dance going on here, Mandy, for the head of the CIA. (laughs) Maybe the head of the CIA wouldn't really do it that rhythmically. Um, But I love Mandy Patinkin. You've been very open about the difficulties of finding blocks of free time for writing, given the pressures of being a single mom, of teaching, of just the daily demands of, of 
housework. And um, I was wondering if that has had any noticeable effect on, on your form with writing. I know Alice Monroe has talked about how early on she she moved towards the short story due to the fragmentation of, of early motherhood and the amounts of time that she had to write. And I was curious if, if you see the constraints of life that have from the outside uh, have had an effect on your sensibility or, or the, the shape of your writing. They probably have shaped my sensibility. I don't think that that, that necessarily shapes, however, your choice of genre, whether, whether you end up writing a 40-page short story or a 250-page novel. I don't, I think, I don't think short stories are written because you don't have time to write a novel. I don't think that's why they're written. They're written because, because the story that you have is a short story. It's, it doesn't require a novel. Um, many people would argue that by virtue, that, I mean, so it's, the short story is not a default, you know, form or genre. It's not like I, you know, I had too much housework, so I could only write short stories. I don't think Alice Monroe ever said that, um, and I don't think it would be true. It's it's just there. There might be some natural kind of structure within you that that or form that a story takes and there and there are people who have argued that a novel because you can dip in and out of it and you can keep it going for you can come back to it and write a little paragraph and then go and clean the kitchen if you want that's easier to do in a novel than it is to do in a short story um where because a short story is read in one fell swoop and you never know how a novel will be read. You can't tell where the reader's going to stop and pick up and stop and pick up. So you as a writer can also go in and out of it and in and out of it in terms of creating it. You have to go back over it, obviously, and give it a polish in a subsequent draft. So I don't I don't think there's a matchup between stories and novels and, and the and lifestyle. I don't think so. I just, I think the amount of writing generally that you can get done when you have to work full time will always be less. Yeah. Well, if we flip it around and look at it from the perspective of the reader, when we keep hearing in the media that perhaps we're going to see the rise of the short story because of our now shortened attention spans and them being a perfect match for each other, when you describe this process for the writer of maybe the writing of a novel allows for more of this dipping in and out as you're writing, it also seems to suggest that perhaps the reader uh, also has that allowance in that form of going in and out of the novel and putting it down and picking it up, and that actually the short story is more a form that demands a sustained attention and is the absolute worst uh, form for somebody with a shortened attention span. Right. I don't, I don't, I've never bought that short attention span argument. I mean, you have to sit down and read for straight 45 minutes usually to, to read a story. Um, and if it's an Alice Monroe story and you're a slow reader like I am, it might, might be like an hour. Um, but you can, you know, that, that's why people sometimes read novels on trains 
and and subways and buses because they can just read it for 10 blocks and then get off, you know. And are you reading anything particularly captivating these days? Well, you know, I'm I'm reading a bunch of things. When I travel, I, I tend to take a whole bunch of old New Yorker magazines with me that I haven't gotten to, and I... And I read, I read them on the planes because I have to take motion sickness <laughs> medicine so I can read something and then conk out. Um, I've just finished Emma Strauss' new book that's coming out in May. It's you know she was my student. She's written a very lovely novel. I think it's going to be a big hit. Um, I've also because I've just moved to Nashville become interested in. And Jesse James, who used to take refuge in Nashville a little bit. And so I've started reading Ron Hansen's book, um, The Assassination of Jesse James by that coward, Robert Ford. Um, I never saw the film, and, I, and I'm late to, to this book. So um, at any rate, so that's what I'm reading. Until recently, you were a, a longtime resident of Wisconsin, and a lot of your work was set in the Midwest, if not specifically or officially in Wisconsin itself. Do you think that your current recent move to Tennessee is going to change uh, the settings in your future fiction? Or if you keep your settings in the Midwest, you potentially change the way you view the Midwest? Possibly. I have no idea. You know, I, I still have my house in Madison. My son is still in Madison. I'm going to go, you know, spend the summers in Madison, and um, and I only just started teaching in Nashville in January, and so I I have no idea what will happen. But I'm assuming change is good, and change will bring you new things, and and yeah, we'll see what happens. Lastly, we were we were talking earlier uh, about your review of Homeland and. You also reviewed Friday Night Lights, and you reviewed the The Wire, as well as sometimes doing movie reviews for the New York Review of Books. Do you have your eyes on any uh, television shows at the moment? No, I haven't been able to watch TV in months. I haven't. I just haven't had any time, and I don't. I don't have HBO in Nashville, um, or and I. I don't have any cable in Nashville. So I don't know what's there, although I have heard that True Detective is very good. So I just I, – I, I would like to watch that. That would be great if you wrote on True Detective. Well, we'll see. I mean sometimes I, I can love something but not have really anything to say about it. But sure. um, Well, it was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Laurie. Oh, Between well, thank you. Thank you for having me. We were talking today with Laurie Moore, the author of Bark. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. 